Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gold in the Hill Country. It's a region that has shaped and befuddled Americans and observers of America for generations, both seemingly cut off from much of the radical transformation all around it in its time, and in this time, yet indelibly involved in it all. A region where time ostensibly stops, yet also moves forward rapidly. A seemingly monolithic region actually full of different kinds of diversity. So what was Appalachia in this era? What changes did it experience, and what challenges did it face? With me to answer these questions is Dr. Bob Hutton, Associate Professor of History and Appalachian Studies at Glenville State College. Bob, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure's all mine. So let me start with uh, the question that's becoming standard for this series. Let us imagine uh, a would-be Alexis de Tocqueville wants to visit or tour at least the main or most important uh, parts or swaths of of Appalachia in the beginning of our period, sometime in the middle, and at the end of our period. What would he see? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, that's uh, (laughs) that's, uh, uh, open to a lot of possibilities. I guess if uh, if our traveler was coming through um, Appalachia just after the Civil War, and by the way, uh, maybe instead of Tocqueville, I think in this case it might we could use someone like say John Muir because he actually did visit Appalachia right after, during or after the Civil War. Um, depending on what part of the region you're exploring, um, and let's say you know we're limiting ourselves to um Appalachia uh as defined as you know south of Pennsylvania and you know no no further uh south and west than uh Georgia and Alabama um so you know southern and central Appalachia uh depending on where you go you're going to see a, a scene somewhat like what you'd see in the rest of the rest of the south uh you'd see a lot of economic ruin you would see a lot of um, uh, farmland laid to waste. You would see a lot of dead livestock. Um, you would see uh, a handful of people who uh, have are 
have suffered from the war and they're really not sure why they've um, why they've been put through this because sometimes they don't feel like it was their war. Uh, you would also find uh, over the the next ten or fifteen, maybe even twenty years after the Civil War, um, sporadic fighting based on uh, political differences that have been created by the war. This is you know so there's a there's a reconstruction story being told there too. Um, if we were to look at the middle of this period, let's say sometime in the 1890s. Again, it depends on what part of Appalachia you're looking at, but uh, somewhere like the Virginia-West Virginia line, you would start to see the arrival of railroads. Uh, somewhere like the North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee tri-state area, you would see uh, environmental degradation caused both by deforestation as well as uh, uh, copper mining particularly in Polk County, Tennessee, um, you, you would see a region that's, that's gone through a tremendous number of changes uh, over the course of one generation. And then if we were to take this on up to uh, about 1920, just after um, uh, World War I, uh, I think the, the big change we'd be talking about but, uh, over the last 50 or so years would be a, uh, a region that has been defined by its, uh, its yeomanry and its forests, um, almost devastated in, in the sense that uh, you have a, a tremendous amount of deforestation, uh, especially in the hardwoods of, the, um, of western North Carolina, north Georgia, eastern Tennessee. And um, the, the children and grandchildren of these yeoman farmers who had either fought in the Civil War or tried to avoid it, or tried a combination of the two, it's depending on what part of the war it was. Um, they've gone from being um, relatively independent landowners to uh, wage earners, or um, very possibly they've become people who've migrated out of the region. So there's a handful of people moving into the region, a large number moving out, and a tremendous amount of physical change too within within this uh, time period. And uh, I think it's uh, a general narrative of declension, to, to put it quite bluntly. Interesting. Uh, so you bring up uh, at least three major issues uh, in your in your beginning summary. I thought I might start with the first because of the uh, the timetable. You mentioned Reconstruction, uh, and one of the things I've been trying to learn nowadays, now that I have, have, I believe, acquired a general understanding of Reconstruction, the efforts and its failures, what did, how did Reconstruction look like in Appalachia as distinct from or similar to the South? Uh, were there any nuances or differences, or was it basically the same thing there and in Mississippi uh, or down in Georgia or down in, say, Florida? Um, it, it was very different than what you would see in Mississippi. Uh, now, Florida, Florida in some ways is a sui generis situation during Reconstruction, but I'll leave that for another historian. No, in, in Appalachia, it, it's the, the, there are a certain number of similarities, but there are also significant differences. Um, 
For for one thing, um, there's a, a much smaller African American population in Western North Carolina, Western Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, um, any of these places in the mountains than there than there was in Mississippi. Mississippi was as a state defined by its African American majority population, uh, and that that's going to be the case right up until. The early 20th century, um, Appalachia uh, had definitely had an African American population and has an African American population, but in sheer numbers, it's considerably smaller. And uh, a lot of um, African American mountaineers decide to to leave Appalachia uh, during Reconstruction. On the other hand, some are coming to. Um, Coming to Appalachia, one of the best, most famous examples of um, migration to Appalachia is uh, when uh, black freed people like uh, a young Booker T. Washington come from South Central Virginia to West Virginia to get employment as a, as a coal miner. And that's a little bit after Reconstruction, but there's a tremendous amount of migration going on and and it is a, a, a biracial story, even though it's it, it looks very different than it would have in um, in Mississippi. Now, in um, places like Eastern Kentucky or Eastern Tennessee, um, one of the the major dynamics was the divide within the white population. In that, uh, there had been a considerable number of um, both. Uh, Unionists, active unionists, as well as uh, what you might call conditional unionists in the mountains of uh, the Cumberland Plateau. Um, you know, people who have just never been in on this whole Confederacy project. Well, uh, you know, as late as, let's say, 1870, 1875, now they've found themselves in the catbird seat. They are at a, a distinct advantage in terms of how the federal government's going to treat them. Uh, and so you have people like uh, Andrew Johnson from East Tennessee, or um, also from East Tennessee, Parson Brownlow, you know, given these plum positions, in, in Andrew Johnson's case, uh, he, he ends up becoming the 17th president, not a successful president at all, but he is from Appalachia. And there's this, uh, this ongoing drama of, uh, of a, of a two-party system being acted out sometimes peacefully, sometimes violently, uh, you know, in various nooks and crannies of um, the uh, Cumberland Plateau as well as the Blue Ridge. In other words, there's um, a, uh, a significant number more white Republicans in Appalachia than you're going to find in the Deep South uh, during Reconstruction. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, when there is violence popping up in the 1870s and the 1880s, it is nine times out of ten, it's typically violence between Republicans and Democrats. And in, in my own research, I've found that it wasn't always uh, it wasn't always white on white violence. Uh, very often, black mountaineers were the the victims of of racial violence in Appalachia during Reconstruction and then during Jim Crow. Uh, in a way that was very similar to what you saw in the in the Deep South, 
Um, it's just the, the, the population, the general population numbers were somewhat different. And the, um, the, the stakes of Reconstruction are, are somewhat different in a place like the Virginia-Tennessee line um, than they would have been in, say, Natchez, Mississippi, or uh, for that matter, uh, southern Georgia. So th there are some distinct similarities, but there's, there's also this sort of unionist-slash-republican counterculture in Appalachia that's going to have very lasting effects. Indeed, some of the most heavily Republican counties in the entire United States happen to be uh, formerly, you know, unionist counties in eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee. And when I say heavily Republican counties in the United States, I mean in 2020. So there's a very strong continuity of uh, party affiliation in parts of Appalachia that date back to Reconstruction. Fascinating. Um, continuing this uh, question of uh, political uh, continuity, it was uh, nowadays um, there is a lot of discussion. I'm sure you're familiar with it back and forth uh, about uh, what one might call broadly, vaguely speaking, uh, populist uh, tendencies. Uh, and in ask, asking you to come on, I was thinking the original uh, populist movement uh, emerged in this era, especially in the 1890s. Uh, and as you mentioned to me, the, the degradation, um, a lot of people becoming less independent and more dependent on uh, distant corporations. And uh, while they may perhaps have welcomed uh, the increased wages, uh, was there was there any uh, was there any cachet for uh, populists uh, in this region, or were did, were they rejected for any number of reasons? Uh, just to clarify, are you are you referring specifically to the capital P populist or People's Party, or are we mixing in you know small P? populist policy. I, I mean, I know I'm muddying the waters by asking that, but you are specifically asking about the, the populist party itself of the 1890s, correct? Yeah, the populist party and or, and or uh, guys like William Jennings Bryan. Okay, well, um, popu capital P populism, the, the people's party that... Uh, put up presidential candidates in uh, 1888 and 1892, uh, was noticeably un unsuccessful in most of Appalachia. Uh, I, I believe uh, Haywood County, North Carolina, which is one mountain county not too far from Asheville, they did ma manage to elect a, um, a populist party sheriff at one point. And um, that was, of course, during the time when North Carolina uh, had this sort of, you know, second wave populism in the late 1890s uh, that was somewhat statewide, but was mostly concentrated in the Piedmont and eastern North Carolina. But it did have its effects in the mountains. But if you um, if you look in places like uh, southwestern Virginia, West Virginia, East Tennessee. Oh, I haven't. I'm not so sure about North Georgia, but I, I think I have my I have my doubts. Um, the the populist party was 
not successful in Appalachia. And I, I think it had to do with the fact that um, populism, the, the populist agrarian revolt in the South was, um, a lot of it had to do with fighting against the, you know, the, the solid South, fighting against places that were completely dominated by the, uh, the Bourbon Democrats, as they were called. And in, um, in the mountains, you had a, a modicum of uh, two-party competition. So there wasn't there was less room for the populace to try, try to squeeze themselves into the to the uh, the conversation in a place like uh, say Scott County, Virginia. So not a lot of popularity there. Now uh, you asked specifically about William Jennings Bryan, who runs for president as a Democrat uh, in 1896, 1900, and 1908. Uh, and yes, some, sometimes he is conflated with with populism, and and yeah, he was a small p populist, but he was you know famously cold toward the actual populist party, and he stayed within the party of Jackson, and and, and he did have a transformative effect on the Democratic Party. Um, he was successful in parts of Appalachia that were swinging Democratic. And he was unsuccessful in parts of Appalachia that were swinging Republican. That's about as um, I think that's about as, as plainly as you can put it. Uh, if you were to study the the electoral results of uh, his three elections, of course he he was a three time loser. Um, I think you would find that he he basically did about as well as. Grover Cleveland did before him, and um, perhaps about as well as, as Woodrow Wilson did, did after him. Um, during that 50-year that period, uh, you see Republican counties voting Republican and Democratic counties voting Democratic, and there's not going to be a lot of rocking the boat for a while, you know, depending on where you happen to live. But uh, all politics is local. But uh, local politics often determines what happens in national politics. And I, I, I think when it came to William Jennings Bryan's three uh, campaigns, uh, there's not too much new under the sun in Appalachia. Uh, he did at one point visit Natural Tunnel, Virginia, for what, for what it's worth. So, um, which is um, uh, in uh, the very southwestern tip of Virginia in the mountains. But... Um, not to any great effect. Now, if you want to talk about William Jennings Bryan gaining um, a certain amount of notoriety or popularity in Appalachia, you'd want to fast forward on up to his uh, Act 3, if you will, and when he ends up in um, Dayton, Tennessee in um, 1925 for the Scopes trial. So it's it's sort of a little bit later in life, but he does make a splash in Appalachia. It's just not as a presidential candidate. Okay. So given that, as you said, uh, the politics, I guess you could call them, they were relatively normal and relatively straightforward. Um, but that still, that leaves uh, two interesting facets. And uh, the first of these uh literally led to a battle at the end of uh, our period, uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain uh, in West Virginia. Uh, I was curious how 
obviously this didn't all come out of nowhere. Uh, how is it that on the one hand you have a, a, a population that for unionist, uh, due to unionist sympathies and other reasons is quite staunchly Republican. Uh, on the other hand, uh, ends up literally uh, almost going to war against federal troops uh, over uh, what seems like corporate abuses. Yeah, yeah, Blair Mountain, we've just celebrated the uh, 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, that wasn't really a party-based competi- uh, conflict, really. Uh, it wasn't a matter of uh, Democrats and Republicans shooting at each other. Um, it was it, it was something somewhat different. It, I, I think a lot of the people who took part in the mine wars um, had probably been forcibly kept away from the ballot box for uh, you know a long time. Um, the when you know when I, I was when I was speaking in very broad strokes about Appalachian politics, uh, I wasn't necessarily speaking of um, the coal encampments and um, company towns that are developing in, in some of the more out of the way spots in uh, southern West Virginia, northern West Virginia, um, and then later on in eastern Kentucky and, and southwest Virginia. Uh, and those places are going to, of course, grow in population as more and more people are employed there. But uh, I was. Uh, uh, speaking in terms of you know the the political turnout or what you see showing up uh, once the the elections take place, um, these miners on the other hand they really didn't see uh, between about 1912 and 1921. Those are kind of considered the semi-official uh, beginning and end of the so-called mine wars. Um, they saw little hope in the ballot box because. Even if you could vote for Woodrow Wilson or William Howard Taft or whoever, but it wasn't changing the conditions uh, right there in places like Logan County, West Virginia, because you were, um, as a, a wage earning worker, you were at the mercy of the boss, you were at the mercy of the market. Uh, wages were lowered or raised at the either at the whims of the market or at the whims of the company. And even with um, with that impoverishing situation, um, you had well, well, two things. Uh, for one thing, you, you you still had the 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 tradition of the labor theory of value that many Americans held dear, um, even after the first one or two generations were forced into wage labor and had to start adhering to the market theory of value. Um, then that many, you know, many of the earliest miners simply believed that their work belonged to them and they weren't going to have it taken away from them. And they took a great amount of pride in their work, even if their, their fathers and grandfathers had been farmers who owned their own land, they at least were going to, you know, claim their own work for themselves. Um, the, 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 the coal they mined was products of their labor. It didn't matter that, uh, Mr. Peabody or whoever the company happened to be, um, technically owned the land on paper. They weren't doing the work. Number two, um, starting in the 1890s and continuing through World War One, uh, a lot of these miners were constantly, literally under the gun 
because uh, coal mines, coal mining uh, companies, railroads and lumber companies and a handful of other uh, companies that had, you know just recently showed up in the mountains and bought up all a tremendous amount of land, they would hire mercenaries. Uh, they were at the time called de uh, detectives. Sometimes they were called mine guards. Um, and they were there to regulate the behavior of miners and, you know, very often probably, you know, keep them from voting or force them to vote a certain way. But more likely, though, they were there to make sure that everyone stayed in line and didn't talk too much about the possibility of, you know, trying to uh, go on strike or, uh, or, or demand more wages or what have you. Um, I found that many, uh, much of the unrest starting in 1912 wasn't necessarily in reaction to, you know, the traditional strike and an attempt to get lesser, fewer hours and more pay. Um, it was a lot of miners who were simply uh, fed up with being um, treated like criminals when they had committed no crime, um, starting, you know, way back in the, the mid-1890s. And uh, oftentimes the straw that broke the camel's back was when they or their, their wives and children would be forcibly thrown out of um, houses that belong to the company and uh, things like that. So uh, this was not a conflict that could be summed up as, uh, you know, containing Republicans and Democrats because many of these miners, some of whom were um, English-speaking Anglo-Americans, but some of whom were black and some of whom were immigrants from places like Eastern Europe and Italy, um, this for them, this was a class struggle, and neither of the two major parties seemed to be of much help to them. But nevertheless, though, they, they still made up a relatively uh, small minority of Appalachian mountaineers, even as late as, as World War I. Uh, their story dominates, uh, you know, the narrative of Appalachia, but... Um, you know, even even by 1920 or so, that we're still talking about a relatively small number of, of men. Um, the reason that Blair Mountain stands out so much in 1921 was it was it, it ends up being such a large, unprecedented gathering uh, who marched between um, Canal County and Logan County on their way to try to try to unionize some of the last. Um, company-dominated company towns in, in the western end of the state, uh, they did not come to blows with federal troops. The federal troops were eventually called in by President Harding at the request of the, the governor of West Virginia, but um, it, the, the historical record shows that miners, many of whom were World War I veterans themselves, laid down their arms once they realized that federal troops were were on their way. And... Um, they, uh, the, 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 the U.S. Army had more of an ameliorating effect than it did um, an aggressive one in that particular case. Entirely fair enough. Um, so, in addition to the question of labor uh, and the question of uh, the uh, abuses, both real and alleged, by uh, company towns uh, towards workers, uh, you placed a very big emphasis uh, in your introductory in your introduction um to uh, Appalachia in this period uh 
uh, as being one of very serious uh, environmental, uh, I guess you call it the degradation or at least very serious change. Um, and you also mentioned uh, the environmentalist John Muir. What did the people of, uh, what did, as far as we can tell, how did the, how did the, the mountaineers uh, immigrant, native, and whatnot, uh, feel about these changes that, on the one hand, uh, gave a lot of people jobs uh, or work or access to markets, and on the other hand, uh, clearly that left uh, uh, a deep scar. Uh, there were different reactions depending on who was who was involved. Um, the, I, I think the. The, the the sheer fact of the matter, if you are uh, someone working as a, a a track layer or a, a coal miner somewhere like uh, McDowell County, West Virginia, uh, the last thing on your mind is the you know the big picture of a, of a, of environmental degradation going on in what used to be your woods or maybe even you know the woods you've just moved to and. It's and you might not notice that as of the early 1900s, there's a blight on the American chestnut tree, which at one point was just about the most common hardwood in the the entire Appalachian chain, stretching stretching from Canada to northern Mississippi. Um, that's not something you would have necessarily noticed uh, overnight. Maybe over the course of 10 years, you you would notice it um, if you were someone who was still trying to hang on and continue the legacy of, of, of the yeoman farmer, if you were able to do that, good, a significant number of mountaineers were doing that, you might start to you know gradually notice something different about your uh, groundwater. Um, and, you know, and things like that, but I, you know, that's I think that's well into the 20th century before um, those effects are, are really felt in a recorded way. Um, but then you go go further south, go down to the um, <clears throat> the the border between North Carolina and Tennessee, where during the the the, the era of of men like uh, John Muir and, and and Teddy Roosevelt, there's this. Um, middle class effort to try to preserve something left of the uh, of the, the the forest primeval and um there's uh right as uh teddy roosevelt is trying to preserve all these spots in the the western united states you have uh people from towns like Asheville, north carolina or knoxville tennessee asking uh can we you know can we preserve some of our places too so during the Taft administration, I believe it was in 1909, relatively soon in his, relatively early in his presidency, when you do have a, a truly, uh, one of the more progressive uh, Congresses uh, during the so-called progressive era, uh, excuse me, there's a tremendous amount of land set aside um, on the, the, the Tennessee-North Carolina border that um, is is preserved by federal edict and eventually is going to become the Pisgah National Forest, eventually is going to become the Great Smokies National Park. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with people, um, you know, writing letters and campaigning for um, 
some sort of environmental con uh, conservation. Th these were the earliest environmentalists. So it really depended on uh, your, your involvement in the environment. Uh, did you have the leisure time? Well, a lot of our so-called progressives were men and women who had a certain amount of means and, and, they, and they had the leisure time to um, to start these letter writing campaigns and stuff. And so they're due a certain amount of attention just like the working class was. Um, and in the meantime, uh, you had the, 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 the people, the, the relatively small number of mountaineers who were still trying to maintain a um, a kind of you know Jeffersonian lifestyle almost of uh, farming, but also you know hunting and gathering. Um, suddenly, they find themselves being called uh, poachers for the first time in their life, and no longer allowed to use some of these relatively unclaimed lands in places like, uh, say, Transylvania County, North Carolina. Um, so that that creates a certain amount of tension too. Um, so there's a uh, there's a, a demand to regulate and to preserve, but there's also a, a demand to ask, well, you know, why why is this not a commons for us as well? And eventually it's going to become a massive amount of land fully dedicated to recreation. Uh, but that's that's something that it takes a, almost till World War II to actually completely accomplish. And... Um, it's it's a there's a big chunk of Appalachia that uh, doesn't reflect uh, you know a working class heritage that's brought to mind like something like Blair Mountain. Instead, it's uh, it's a big chunk of the mountains that reflects the bourgeois pursuits one associates with a you know a family summer vacation. Uh, that's that's Southern Appalachia pretty much in a nutshell. Speaking of bourgeois pursuits uh, and means to get to the level of bourgeois, um, this was an era of a profound amount of establishment of public schools and also higher education of all sorts of of all sorts. And I've noticed uh, that you yourself have also written a book in a history, I believe, of the University of Tennessee. And I was wondering uh, how much of those efforts in this time. Uh, reached uh, either inside Appalachia or near enough that uh, a mountaineer or worker wanting to send their kids to uh, be able to uh, have a perhaps a slightly not as hard a life as uh, they did. Uh, how uh, how much did it affect them? Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, efforts to uh, educate the benighted mountaineer, <laughs> starting um, you know, starting pretty early on back during the uh, the days of Reconstruction. Um, my friend uh, Jim Clotter uh, wrote an article back around 1980 called the uh, the Black South and the White uh, and White Appalachia. That's uh, it's about the um, home missions movement that started out uh, trying to uh, educate freed people during the 1860s and by the 1870s they've they've become discouraged with that and so they turn their attentions to um, the upper south and particularly the the um, what they call what one educator called the contemporary ancestors in the mountains 
So you see the establishment of schools like uh, Berea College. Actually, it was back in the 1850s, started as a abolitionist um, uh, colony, if you will, in, in Kentucky. Uh, Alice Lloyd College, uh, the Pi-Fi Settlement down in Sevier County, uh, Tennessee. And then you also have a handful of just regular old state universities or state colleges that become state universities or you know land-grant institutions that happen to be in Appalachia. Uh, a few that come to mind are places like uh, what's now Virginia Tech and uh, what's now the University of Tennessee. Um, and then of course you have you know any number of uh, in the early 20th century of what start out as state teachers colleges and then uh, eventually become I guess what we would call state regionals and I, actually some of those start as early as the 1870s too in fact I'm employed by a school that began as a quote-unquote state normal school in 1872 and then eventually Glenville becomes a, a four-year college in the 1930s so there's there's a certain amount of evolution uh, going on uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century in, in terms of uh, what sort of demand is there for what kind of higher education. Um, you know, these are these are mostly public institutions. There's a hand, and of course there's a lot of denominational schools, especially the Baptist, Methodists, and Presbyterians. Um, and they do make a very, you know, noticeable effort to include what they consider to be a, a poor, impoverished population. Uh, Berea, especially, is known for this by about 1900. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Appalachia is just like the rest of the country. And, and until very, very recently, uh, you know, college education remains um, a you know, a product of privilege. I mean, it's still a product of privilege to here in the 21st century. But I, I think in Appalachia, it sort of follows the same the same general pattern as it does as it does nationally. Um, it's just that it's having to do it in a region that uh, you know has a uh, when it comes to infrastructure, it has a very strong spirit but a very weak flesh. And that's uh, that's what you're having to deal with if you want to start a college somewhere on the the, the Tennessee Kentucky uh, border. Um, more than likely, your 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 only problem is going to be a, a, a relative lack of funding, just because you're in a you're in a place with a relatively small amount of revenue. So colleges come and go, and uh, but you know certain state uh, institutions persist. And in the case of what becomes the University of Tennessee, I think it, it finally became the University of Tennessee in 1879. Um, the fact that it's in Appalachia, rather than in a more central location somewhere near Nashville, say, is 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 very controversial on the on you know on the state level because why is it that those guys over there in the mountains um, had get to have our uh, you know our state university? Why is it somewhere? more convenient to the the bulk of the population and and so there's there's a lot of back and forth fighting about that i'm not sure if the same was the case for uh virginia but of course in 
Kentucky and North Carolina and West Virginia, it's in the the more, shall we say, accessible, flatter areas of the state where you'd see the um, the establishment of the 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 larger larger colleges and universities. So it's uh, it's a very American story. It's just one that's that's often told with this kind of Pollyanna-ish uh, polish about. Uh, you know, some very friendly New Englanders or Midwesterners coming down from on high and trying to uh, to give the Mountaineers some sort of um, uplift, either a Christian uplift or a secular uplift, and sometimes a little bit of both at the same time. That actually uh, meshes nicely with uh, an interview I had with uh, Professor Samuel Goldman of uh uh, Georgetown University about the wasps and how you know how people actually reacted to such people who thought they were saving the world and saving other Americans. So, in terms, uh, assuming that they weren't all that uh, all that appreciative of outsiders coming in and busybodying them, what sort of I guess you might call it education in the broad sense of. Uh, cultural and religious traditions and ideas uh, ha- being handed down did you know the bulk of 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 mountaineers engage in how would how would they how would they try and and raise their children uh, assuming they didn't go to uh, one of these uh, transplanted institutions i mean i've i've found relatively little evidence that uh, historically mountaineers were um, averse to education coming from coming from elsewhere because uh, it, education comes from elsewhere everywhere uh, depending on what stage of history you happen to to be there I mean it was uh, it was it was coming from Great Britain when it, it was established in places like Yale and Princeton uh, so it, it, this is they're just experiencing this a little bit later and I, I've not gotten too much of a sense that you have uh, that much resistance to the establishment of secondary schools or, or colleges um, in, in, in most parts of the mountains. I mean, there's there's been a lot of pop culture that seems to suggest there's an anti-education bent in Appalachia, but um, it's it, it really doesn't show up much on the historical record. Now, the, there's there's moments where, like for instance, there's the uh, a moment detailed in my friend Emily Satterwhite's book *Dear Appalachia*, where the the famous novelist John Fox Jr., who wrote these uh, very fanciful romances about uh, handsome engineers showing up in the Kentucky mountains and falling in love with a beautiful mountain girl, and then you know saving uh, saving the local economy through science and engineering. Uh, the, there was uh, a handful of Berea students uh, at one point wrote some very nasty letters to John Fox Jr. saying that his portrayals of them and and their 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 people you know viewed collectively were really frustrating and wrong and they uh, they were they were offended when he when he came to to visit them in Berea. And, um, other than that, though, I think uh, many. Uh, mountaineers have have um, embraced 
education and um, uplift as, as much as is possible. Uh, now, uh, I, I, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the earlier interview you did about the wasps. Um, you know, meanwhile, in eight, the 1890s on up through really well into the 20th century, um, the, uh, the wasp populations that are bringing uh, you know, some of these settlement schools and colleges down to Appalachia, uh, a big part of their fascination with Appalachia had to do with the fact that um, they themselves, these Boston Brahmins and um, uh, people from the Philadelphia Main Line and you know Westchester County New Yorkers, they were very concerned that uh, the United States was being uh, polluted by what they considered um, uh, nasty non-Teutonic uh, ele uh, blood elements. and. So they, they look down to eastern Kentucky and they see what they consider, uh, you know, the, the last vestiges of pure Anglo-Saxonism and stuff like that. And that's, that's a big motivation for them. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, a lot of, you'll, you'll see some Appalachian newspaper editors and educators repeat the same sort of thing and talk about being purely Appalachian. And, and next thing you know, we're, we're, we're on up in the, the area, the era of, um, eugenics in the 1920s and that that sort of racial thinking gets mixed in with that it gets mixed in with the conflict over evolution and um, it's it, I, I really don't think it's until around the time of the scopes trial that you really start to get some sort of sense that uh, some local school boards and, and nabobs uh, have some sort of problem with science and, and and learning but even then even then there's both both sides of the of the argument are heard from within the mountains entirely fair enough very, uh, very uh, entirely fair enough so you mentioned how um some of the newspaper editors and people who write wrote um the people who wrote on the subject of appalachia and appalachian identity talked about they're ostensibly pure, uh, they're ostensibly pure nature. Uh, but you also mentioned that there were immigrants that came into this region. So were they met with hostility or did they try to, or did they try to pretend they weren't there or that they weren't uh, a significant uh, part of the, uh, the region? I'm familiar with a certain amount of violence against African-Americans in places like Southern West Virginia and Southwestern Virginia. Uh, especially in the 1890s. This was, of course, the decade of where the, the, the number of, of lynchings taking place in, in the rest of the South was at its highest number. It, and, it, and that's reflected in Appalachia uh, to a significant extent. Uh, I'm less aware of conflicts developing uh, toward uh, Italian immigrants, Hungarian immigrants, um, uh, a, a significant number of Russian Jews settle in uh, places like uh, Hayside, Virginia, uh, Bradshaw, West Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee. Um, there, there was probably a, a certain amount of, uh, of piecemeal conflict uh, going on there, but in, in the case of the, um, the Italians and the, the Hungarians, 
who are coming to places like Wyoming County, uh, West Virginia, uh, they and you know a lot of the Anglo miners sort of find themselves in the same boat. Now, if you know if you watch the movie Mate One, there's that scene where the uh, the wives of the miners are, are uh, the, the Anglo wives and the Italian wives are sort of comparing their different their differing cultural food ways and stuff like that and uh, and putting ethnicity aside in favor of class solidarity and that that's sort of a rosy picture and I'm not sure if that sort of comparison between rice and risotto ever actually took place um, but it's it, it's it's not a major it, it's not really a major theme in in places like southern West Virginia and in fact um, the Italian and, and Hungarian and um, Polish populations that uh, you know find themselves in places like southern West Virginia they they don't really stay there for all that long they're um, they, they they're they're more likely to permanently settle in northern West Virginia. Uh, Western Pennsylvania, of course, Eastern Eastern Ohio, uh, by by the time of World War One, and they're um, as you know they they make the attempt to assimilate and become Americans just like so many other immigrants. But um, ethnic um, conflict in the uh, Southern West Virginia coal fields, uh, I'm not that aware of it. And, and if you go further south in Appalachia, uh, it's a moot point because uh, ethnic immigration uh, south of the coal fields, or multi-ethnic immigration south of the coal fields during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era is very minute. Okay. I, uh, I think that gives us a very good, uh, well-rounded picture uh, of this region. And uh, thank you very much for correcting me on a number of misconceptions that I myself had. Uh, Bob Hutton, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun for me. Thank you.